Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Fighting to Protect the Constitution. What are the threats and how do we fight back? Please welcome Tommy Binion, Vice President of Government Relations at the Heritage Foundation. Well, to our live audience, welcome to the Heritage Foundation um, and to the many that will be catching this program online. We, we sincerely hope that you enjoy this program. Today and this month, we are marking the 235th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution. We believe, of course, as Americans and conservatives in the original text of the Constitution and the original meaning of that text, we believe and we know throughout our history that the U.S. Constitution has stood the test of time and protected our freedoms. But today, yes, it is the job of the U.S. Constitution to protect our freedoms, but it is equally our job to protect the U.S. Constitution as it comes under fire. There are many on the left who want to twist its meaning, stretch the text, uh, that think of it as a living document that they can abuse um, and uh, mishandle to serve their agenda. There is no one better to talk to us about the advancing threat of the federal government, of administrative law, uh, and of the threats to our freedoms than Harriet Hegeman. Uh, Harriet grew up on a ranch in Fort Laramie, Wyoming, where she learned the value of hard work. I've spent some time in that part of the world and it is breathtakingly beautiful. I can't imagine why she would want to leave there to come here other than to protect the U.S. Constitution. Uh, on that ranch she learned the value of responsibility and I heard her say in an interview that the flip side of responsibility is freedom. I also heard her say that she wants to make the federal government irrelevant in our lives. Those two statements really embody her view of the Constitution, my view, our view of the Constitution at the Heritage Foundation. Um, we have seen her and her career as an attorney fight to protect Americans from the Constitution. She had a very successful law practice um, as an attorney, and then she went on in a nonprofit capacity uh, to litigate on behalf of Americans that were suffering under the long reach of the federal government. She is a true believer in federalism and the U.S. Constitution, our founding document. We are proud to have her here to mark Constitution Day at the Heritage Foundation. Well, good morning, and it is absolutely wonderful to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for asking me to come and talk to you about what I believe is perhaps one of the greatest documents ever written. The fact is that the Constitution has been under serious assault from the left and from those who not only seek to rewrite history, but are incapable of understanding why the United States is the greatest country in the history of the world. Very simply, America is built on the foundation of freedom of liberty, of individual autonomy and responsibility, and the concept of limited government. One that is of, by, and for the people. 
Our Constitution and our Bill of Rights was built brick by brick on the recognition that we are imbued with certain natural rights that were granted to us by God and not the government. Those rights are the, are, have been, were granted to us at the moment of conception, and it is a recognition that those rights of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to due process, the right to equal protection, and the right to own property so that we can control our own destiny. All of those rights were granted by our creator and not the government. Why is that important? Because, the, because they were not granted by the government, the government cannot take them away. Over the last two and a half years, we have been confronted with an existential threat to our very existence as Americans, to our way of life, to our heritage as a free people, and to our governing philosophy. Our state and federal government's response to COVID-19 has laid bare the tyrannical undercurrent that moves beneath our feet to be let loose as though it's water flowing over a dam by bureaucratic dictators who seek to control our lives, our families, our businesses, our houses of worship, and our schools. Well, I believe that many of us have always comforted ourselves that it cannot happen here, being tyranny, being controlled by a despot, moving towards socialism and communism. The fact is that we know now that it can, and we need to take this fight and take on this fight so that we can adhere to the promise that was granted to us by our founding fathers. The fact is that the government answers to us, not the other way around, and we need to reclaim our government. We need to take our country back. Unfortunately, there are many other threats to our country and in, uh, the, the threats to, uh, that are destabilizing to those of us as a country and people and threats to our constitutional republic. The Biden administra administration is a constitutional disaster, the likes of which we have not seen before. It's an administration that at this point makes no effort to adhere to even the most rudimentary constructs of what we call the rule of law. An administration that believes that it can, by presidential fiat and executive order, take 30% of our real property out of production in an effort to fight what they describe as global warming, with no explanation as to how destroying our ability to grow our own food and to uh, produce energy will do anything other than further government-imposed poverty. An administration that believes that the President of the United States a person who is solely tasked with carrying out the laws passed by Congress can forgive student debt and force all other hardworking people to foot the bill, while also ignoring the trillion dollar price tag and while sidestepping any discussion of what that policy would actually do to our universities and the cost of education. An administration that ignores the mandate of the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution and seeks to deny our God-given right to defend ourselves. An administration that has imposed unlawful vaccine mandates against our federal employees, our federal contractors, and our healthcare workers, while at the same time pushing what is the most radical abortion policy in the history of the United States. And while also suppressing any information that would call into question the efficacy and safety of the vaccine mandates that they are now pushing on all of us, including six-month-old babies.
an administration that has worked tirelessly to suppress our freedom to speak as guaranteed by the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, while also conspiring with Silicon Valley oligarchs who run our social media giants and who have been censuring the American citizens. There is a reason that our founders set forth in the First Amendment our freedom of speech and our freedom of religion, because from those two entitlements come every other right. We cannot decry due process tyranny without the right to speak, and we cannot express fealty to our creator rather than to the government without the freedom of religion. The Biden administration knows that if they can prevent us from communicating, they can prevent us from fighting back. But we do not find ourselves in this moment of time simply because of a pandemic and simply because of the Biden administration. Congress itself has created the framework for the demise of our republic, uh, and I don't, for the demise of our republic, and by taking away our republican form of government as guaranteed to us in the United States Constitution. We have a representative republic, not a democracy, where our elected officials are answerable to us. Congress has largely abdicated its legislative responsibilities and empowered unelected bureaucrats in hundreds of federal agencies to deny our rights. And what has this wrought? An EPA declaring an irrigation ditch as a navigable water of the United States and thereby preventing our farmers from maintaining their irrigation infrastructure on the property that they own so that they can, that they can grow food to feed us all. A war on our domestic energy producers by individuals who have never produced anything except words on a page. And a United States Forest Service that no longer measures production in terms of board feet of lumber produced, but in the number of trees burned to the ground or destroyed by the pine beetle. And these are just to name a few. We have the USDA who is now instructing our schools that they either adopt radical gender ideology or they will withhold school lunch money. We have an SEC that does not evaluate companies based upon their adherence to providing the best return on investment, but on whether they have adopted the best ESG policies to satisfy the gender studies program at Oberlin University. We have in short, a government run by the so-called experts, experts that are in the process of and intentionally destroying our prosperity and our greatness. Experts who have intentionally adopted policies that are designed to increase the cost of putting food on your table, gas in your car, and a roof over your head. Experts who believe that human suffering is a virtue for all of us, but not for them. Congress is the branch that is responsible for legislating, and it must reclaim that responsibility. It must retake the reins of governing in this country. It must stop lamenting the expansion of the administrative state and actually finally do something about it. Throughout our history, the United States has been known for adhering to the rule of law. We have equal protection, we have due process, and these are some of the things that have always set us apart. Yet that is not what we are dealing with now. In the last couple of years, we have experienced the abject misery and turmoil that abounds when you set up a two-tiered justice system, one that applies one set of laws to the elites and another set of laws to the rest of us, and one that applies to, to everyone else. Hunter Biden can strike shady deals with foreign businessmen, sell access to his powerful father, all while smoking crack on video, and nothing happens to him. 
but many January 6 defendants are held in jail without trial, in abhorrent living conditions, without access to even the most basic rights as guaranteed by our Constitution. And our political elite celebrate their suffering. The Clintons can run a multi-generational, multi-million dollar slush fund with foreign donors while the FBI raids former President Trump's home as part of a partisan witch hunt. And the January 6th committee can boast of, quote, protecting our Constitution while they run a kangaroo court with no due process, no right of confrontation or cross-examination of witnesses, and no one representing the views of the accused, which is not only former President Trump, but anyone who supported him. I recently listened to a member of that committee state that cross-examination wouldn't have made any difference for the witnesses that they called, that they got all of the information that they needed. Well, I've tried over 30 lawsuits. I've taken on a lot of different federal agencies. I've done a lot of depositions and I've done a lot of cross-examination. I can assure you that had I had the opportunity to cross-examine some of those witnesses, we'd have a different narrative in the public discourse at this very moment in time. Cross-examination has been declared by the Supreme Court one of the most important tools that we have to ferret out the truth. But what you realize with the January 6th Commission is that they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in a narrative. They're interested in presenting a certain side of what they believe happened on January 6th. But that isn't the way that our government works. That isn't the way that our Constitution works. We don't allow the narrative to be written before the trial has taken place. That needs to happen after the trial and not with both the, the, the judge and the jury and the prosecutor all residing in the same panel. We are in an extremely difficult, uncertain, and precarious moment in time. We are no longer living in a situation where most Democrats and Republicans love our country but disagree on whether to spend more money on social programs or on national defense. We're living in a situation where one of our major parties despises what our country stands for and our history and our constitution and the foundation of who and what we are. We are living in a situation where we have one major political party that wants to rewrite history, wants to rewrite what our founding fathers stood for, what they believed in, what they were creating, and why. We are living in a situation where one of our major political parties does not believe any longer in freedom of speech, in freedom of religion, in due process, in equal protection, in states' rights, and in personal responsibility. And the tragic thing is that they are the party that is currently in power. So what do we do with this mess that we're in? One of the things is we no longer tolerate the rewriting of our history. We no longer tolerate the rewriting of our history. We do not tolerate the vilification of people because of the color of their skin or because of their sex. We do not allow the most ignorant among us to make the policies to govern our lives. Congress must take back its rightful responsibility as the legislative branch of government. Congress must pass legislation to rein in the out of control, unelected, and unaccountable bureaucrats. Congress must return power to the states where it belongs and as guaranteed by the 10th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Congress must exercise its power of the purse and stop running scared every time that we have yet another agency, an NGO, 
the national press or politicians tell us that if we don't fund them to the tune of billions of dollars, the world is going to explode. Our children are going to suffer terrible tragedy beyond anything we've ever seen before and the life on earth as we know it will end. At $32 trillion in debt, we're running out of runway and the legislative branch of our government needs to act. They need to exercise their constitutional responsibility of governing and legislating and adopting policies that are for the benefit of the citizens of this country, not for the benefit of the elite in Washington, DC. In closing, I know that my remarks today seem rather dour and I apologize for that. But I also want you to know that I'm actually a very optimistic person. It's why I've done what I've done. It's why I do what I do. It's why I fight the battles that I fight. This country is worth fighting for because this country is worth protecting. I am an optimist because of our constitution. It is the greatest governing document that has ever been written because it is based upon one pretty simple concept and it's based on the concept of the individual. It's based on the concept of freedom. It's based on the concept of liberty. It's based on the concept that I recognize that every single person in this room and who is watching this today has the right to make their own decisions about their lives, their families, and their future. I believe in self-governance. I believe in responsibility. And I believe that our constitution and what it stands for is embedded in our every cell. It's embedded in our very identity, our philosophy, our national culture, and who we are as a people. In America, we control our own destiny. We decide what happens next. We have the power to determine whether we remain that bright shining city on the hill or we become a footnote in history and a failed experiment in self-governance. Personally, I know what we're going to do. I know what decision we're going to make and I know that we're going to turn this ship around. We're going to return to our constitutional foundation we're going to return to the concepts and actually put forth what we believe in in terms of freedom, liberty, limited government. That is our future. That is our history. It is our very existence. Thank you. Thank you to the founders and thank each, of every, each and every one of you for fighting this fight, for getting in this battle, for recognizing that you are part of the solution. Again, thank you for letting me visit with you today on this incredible, uh, with this incredible opportunity to talk about our constitution. Thank you. Wow, what a beautiful defense of our natural rights protected by the Constitution. Ma'am, as you were delivering those remarks, I found myself wondering how many in Washington could defend the Constitution like you just have? How many in Washington could capture what it means to our history, what it can mean to our future, and what those threats are to the Constitution? How many on the Hill? How many in the White House? I, 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 I've spent my career in Washington, and I don't mean to be dour either, but the, the answer is very, very few. And then I found myself wondering how many of our college students can do that? How many were prepared by proper civics education to understand uh, what, what you were talking about? And I happen to know that that answer is very few as well. So I want to say to the online audience, if you were watching that and you were as inspired as I was 
if if you think this is a worthy defense of our Constitution, please take this video and share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with a college student you know. Share it with an elected representative you know so that they can hear what you just heard in that beautiful defense. I, I want to say thank you for that speech. Well, you're welcome. I guess my response to it, to your question was I would have expected everyone to be able to defend the Constitution that way, especially those people who work in Washington, D.C. And perhaps the fact that they don't, with your experience, that they don't have that knowledge or that history or that understanding perhaps tells us why we're in the situation we're in. That's right. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and your optimism that you injected into this, that we are going to return to our constitutional foundation, that's going to start with civics education and that's going to start with leadership here in Washington and leadership in our state capitals. I, I want to dive into um, two contrasts uh, that you reference in your speech um, that the Constitution sets up. And, and the first contrast is between the executive branch and the Article I legislative authority held by the U.S. Congress. You, rep, you, you referenced administrative law, you referenced um, the waters of the U.S. Uh, where two raindrops that happen to land in the same spot can now be regulated uh, by the United States government. You have spent a, your career fighting against administrative law. Um, I'm thinking of pen and phone style executive fiats, uh, student loans, of course, that big leap that uh, President Biden recently took. Um, the Constitution is set up to protect us from that kind of executive fiat, but it requires um, a robust legislative authority that Congress jealously guards. Do we have that today? Not now. That's been the problem. Is Congress, and I think most specifically over the last 30 years, obviously with the New Deal in the late 1930s, that was the beginning of what we saw in terms of the so-called experts being able to take over the decision-making and legislating in this country. It was contrary to the Constitution at that time and remains more so today. But over the last 30 years, what we found is that the administrative agencies and the executive branch has realized that they can legislate, that they can make law, that they don't have to go through our congressional representatives, and to be very honest, a lot of our congressional representatives have realized that this job can be pretty easy if you don't actually have to make the decisions that affect people's lives. My view of it is that any kind of a decision that is going to affect us to the tune of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, it ought to be Congress that's the body that makes the decision, and here's why because they're accountable to all of you, to all of us. They're our elected representatives. An unelected bureaucrat in the USDA will never have to answer to you, will never have to respond to you. You don't even know who's making the decision in the USDA about whether we get to feed our kids in Wyoming. Uh, in, in Wyoming, if we don't adopt the rad radical gender ideology that's permeating this administration, they will withhold $40 million in lunch money. That what what kind of what law ever gave the USDA the authority to determine to make that kind of a determination? Yet um, that's what's happening in this country. Uh, we have uh, executive decisions, USDA decisions that can cost our industries billions of dollars being made by somebody in, in, in a building that's south of here and nobody who is in the ag industry will actually know who made the decision or why. That isn't our form of government and we have to get back to Congress making the laws and the executive branch doing nothing but carrying out those laws. No, 
not making their own laws, not drafting onerous regulations, not defining the waters of the US or whatever it might be. That is the key to reclaiming our constitutional republic. When President Obama um, was enacting administrative amnesty, uh, a program called DACA Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, I so clearly remember him saying, if Congress won't do it, I will. And the, there ought to have been a visceral reaction to that abuse of the separation of powers uh, that is contained in the Constitution. It was fundamentally unconstitutional, uh, but there should have been an uproar uh, against that concept that if, if Congress doesn't do something, then the president can and will do something about it. Of course, inaction is a choice in and of itself that the Congress made with respect to amnesty for illegal immigrants. And uh, we are still frustrated today by that, that um, abuse of power. Uh, and of course, President Biden feels empowered by the same concept. And that has shown itself in, in um, most recently uh, forgiveness of student loans, which in, in my view is an, an abhorrent uh, and unfair and unjust transfer of wealth um, from everyday working people to, to elite Americans. Um, I wanna talk about the second contrast that you drew, and of course it's one that the Constitution draws as well, and that is between the federal government here in Washington, D.C. and the states. Uh, the 10th Amendment protects the power of the states, and the founders meant for that to be a much more robust power than it is today. We saw that in COVID. We see it every day. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on the state of the 10th Amendment today and how we get back to federalism. We absolutely have to revitalize the 10th Amendment and understand what it means and why. Our forefathers recognized that the federal government should have very limited power, and the reason being that it is the state's that, that should have the power. It is the individuals that are closest to us. I come from the state of Wyoming. It's the least populated state in the nation. There are 580,000 people in the state of Wyoming. I know my legislators. I know my governor. I know that the, the folks on the city council and the county commissioners. Um, it is the government that is the closest to the people is going to be more responsive, more reactive, uh, more accountable than any government that is thousands of miles away. Again, there are decisions that are being made right here in Washington, D.C. by the USDA, by the EPA, by the Department of Transportation that have huge impacts on the citizens of Wyoming. But we have no say in what those decisions are because of the way they're being carried out. It is imperative that our states reclaim their rightful place as being uh, the experiments in democracy, the, the, the states that have the responsibility for governing, and we need to take power out of Washington, D.C. I know that people talk about that a lot. We hear it, we've heard it for decades now, that, that Washington, D.C. is too powerful. The reality is that it is. And there are very simple ways of looking at this and what the outcome is. We're $32 trillion in debt. We're running out of runway. We're running out of, out, of, out of room to maneuver because of the failures of the decisions that are being made right here in Washington, D.C. I think that the Biden administration has, for a lot of people, uh, allowed them to open their eyes as to what an all-powerful government really does, an all-powerful federal government really does. And what we recognize is that uh, individual liberty and freedom are some of the first things that they throw out the window. And that's what this administration has done. You mentioned you've engaged in over 30 lawsuits. Um, uh, late last year, the Biden administration enacted by administrative fiat 
um, a, uh, a COVID vaccine mandate. We as an employer at the Heritage Foundation of more than 100 individuals were required to mandate that our employees get the COVID shot. And we sued the federal government um, over that. And of course, uh, many others did as well. And those lawsuits were successful. And we were not ultimately subject to that mandate. But given your experience suing the federal government, I think we'd like to hear about the enduring strength of um, the Constitution that protects us, the uh, enduring importance of the legal system, that if the administration gets it wrong, if Congress gets it wrong, uh, there is a way for Americans to appeal to the Constitution itself and avail themselves of that protection. Well, I've had hundreds of lawsuits. I've tried over 30 lawsuits, and I've had a lot of lawsuits against the federal government. And the fact is that we do have the judicial system, and that's the third branch of government. And we have the ability to go to the judiciary when the executive branch or even the legislative branch does things that are unconstitutional. I worked on vaccine mandate cases as well. The law firm that I work with filed one of the very first vaccine mandate lawsuits in the United States because we recognized how incredibly unconstitutional it was for the government to be mandating what is ex essentially, especially at that time with a vaccine that had only been approved under an emergency use, use authorization for our government entities to be mandating vaccines and dictating what businesses and private entities can do. We do have the court system to protect us. And I want to give you an example of how important that is and how well that can work uh, if we make sure that, again, we adhere to the rule of law. I am currently representing a landowner in southwestern Colorado, and maybe you heard several years ago about the EPA blowing out the Gold King Mine and turning the Animas River orange. You may have seen the horrific photographs. It was one of the worst environmental disasters in U.S. history, and it was caused by the Environmental Protection Agency. After they blew out the Gold King Mine, they went in, that, that mine belonged to my client. Uh, they went in, they destroyed his mine, and then they built a multi-million dollar water treatment facility on his property without his permission and without his knowledge. They have been sitting there on his property for seven years and they've never paid him a dime in rent. Clearly a violation of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, 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 it's an unconstitutional takings. You, the, the government cannot take your property without just compensation. So we filed a takings claim in the Court of Federal Claims. The federal government, as it typically does, immediately filed a motion to dismiss. And two weeks ago, we had a hearing uh, here in the Court of Federal Claims, and the judge denied that motion. Had a three-and-a-half-hour hearing. Uh, I, we made our argument. The judge was very well prepared, understood the issues, had read the cases, had read all the briefs, and was, was ready to rule from the bench and made sure that this case is going forward. That is an example of how our judiciary does protect our constitutional rights. And for those judges who understand the Constitution, understand the importance of the Fifth Amendment, understand the importance of private property rights. It was a great win for that. We now will go forward, go through discovery, be able to expose what the EPA has done and hopefully prevail and uh, uh, be able to get compensation for our clients. But it, the, the judiciary is the bulwark against the executive branch. That's why it's very, very, very important that, the, that, our, that our court system recognize what its role is, and it isn't to rubber stamp this administration or any administration either. It needs to protect our civil rights from government overreach. I always think about it from the standpoint of they say that the, um, that, that the, uh, the tie goes to the runner. 
Um, I think about that in a constitutional sense as well. Anytime, in my opinion, that there's a close call as to whether a government action violates constitutional rights, the courts always need to land on the side of the individual. That's the way that our government is set up and it's the way that our constitution is written. The individual is the king in our country. My, my son has his first coach pitch baseball scrimmage tonight and if the tie goes to the runner, I, I hope the umpires for tonight's game are, are watching this and, and, and my son can be the beneficiary of that. Today, you're absolutely right. The courts are the bulwark, but the system the founders gave us is meant for each branch, all three here at the federal level and the states, to be a bulwark against one another. And so perhaps too often the courts have to play that role if Congress doesn't jealously guard and exercise its Article I authority if the states don't exercise their Tenth Amendment authority, then perhaps the states have to, uh, ha or perhaps the courts um, do have to provide that final safety net, uh, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes there are uh, activist judges that don't provide that final safety net, and so we can't simply rely on the courts um, I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, perhaps our civics education in this country isn't what it should be, but as the young people in the audience know, we have had checks and balances drilled into our head. I'd like to get your thoughts on the role that Congress should play, the role that the state should play to make sure that those checks and balances are healthy. Well, again, I think that one of the problems that we've had in this country is that our congressional representatives have abdicated their responsibility of jealousy, jealously guarding their responsibility to legislate. And we have turned over, we have over 400 federal agencies in this country. We don't quite know how many there are. There are millions of federal employees. We don't quite know how many there are. And what Congress has done is they pass a law and then they turn it over to the, to the regulatory agencies to write the regulations. That isn't the way that this is supposed to work. And I'm going to use Obamacare as an example. Adopted in 2010, and, and this is the example that I always use when I, just, when I say, government is always trying to fix its last solution. And I don't think that there is a better example of that than Obamacare, right? So they passed a 2100, 2200 page behemoth of a bill. And then the Department of Health and various agencies went in and wrote 20,000 pages of regulations. 20,000 pages of regulations. Now I'm gonna say this, if Congress is incapable of writing a law that is over 2000 pages long, that is self-effectuating, then we need to fire the entire bunch. Their only job was to write a law. And what do we have? Not only the law itself, but 20,000 pages of regulations. And that's what Title IX, right now we're in the midst of, the, of this administration trying to adopt new regulations on Title IX. Have you ever read Title IX? It's about this long. It's one paragraph. It's awful simple. You, get, you can't get federal funds if you discriminate on the basis of sex. That's simple. That's not hard. Everybody in this room can figure that out. They are adopting, they are attempting to pass hundreds of pages of regulations of how our schools and institutions have to implement and adhere to Title IX. That is absolutely absurd and it demonstrates the mess that we find ourselves in because it's those administrative agencies, it's the Department of Education then that is legislating, not 
enforcing or uh, carrying forth Title IX as it's written. And so Congress has allowed these agencies to do this. And where I get frustrated is when I hear members of Congress, members of the House or members of the Senate, and they lament what our, these administrative agencies do. And they'll talk about the regulations or the guidance documents and, and say, I, you know, I just wish that the agency wouldn't have done that. We'll stop them. This isn't rocket science. This isn't complicated. This isn't difficult. We have people that can write laws that are self-effectuating, that are unambiguous. We've done it throughout history, but it's been in the last 30 years that we've empowered, again, the so-called experts among us to be making decisions. And the result in the interior West, for example, is the destruction of our national forests. Uh, catastrophic forest fires, man-made, the destruction of our infrastructure, uh, with our dams and our reservoirs and our canals and ditches. Uh, those are the kinds of things. The, the experts are not doing the best job for us right now, number one. But the other thing is, is that Congress is not being held accountable for the decisions that are made because they can always say, but we're not the ones that did that. That was the EPA. That was the USDA. That was the Department of Transportation. We should never allow an elected official to point to an agency and say it's their fault because that elected official is the one that needs to go in and fix it. I, I want to close where I opened in, in the following way. You mentioned uh, all of the iterations of regulations that the administrative state has attached to Title IX. Of course, the most recent iteration of Title IX has received hundreds of thousands of comments in opposition from Americans all across this country that object to that. Um, yes, the Constitution protects our natural rights, but it is now our job as Americans to protect the Constitution. What can we do today, Constitution Day, uh, to do our duty uh, to protect the Constitution? Well, when people are running for office, you need to hold them accountable for the decisions that they're making. You need to question them about how they're going to govern and why. And then when they get into office, you need to make sure that they do and they carry out what they said they were going to do. I think that that's one of the things. This is an election season, we all know throughout this, the, the country. We need to hold our elected officials accountable for the decisions that they make. And we cannot and we should not tolerate the excuse that it is the agency that did it, that it is the Biden administration. We have the ability to constrain what these agencies are doing. We have the ability to constrain what President Biden is doing. But we have to have the, I guess, the fortitude and we have to have the courage and we have to have the ability to, to do so and we have to have we have to be willing uh, to push back against the narrative that is taking hold in this country that it is the administrative agencies that should be dictating what we do and how we live our lives that is not our form of government that's absolutely contrary to the very foundation of our constitution congress needs to take back its power and it needs to actually exercise it on behalf of the citizens of this great country on behalf of the Heritage Foundation, thank you for doing that throughout your career in the courtroom and in the public arena. And thank you for being here thank today. Thank you. Thank you.